Hi, I'm Sam. I'm Mike. I'm Josh. And this is Fall Risk. smashing episode prep for you today i'm joined by not one but two of the absolute greatest flyers and teachers i've probably ever known uh mr josh evans and mr mike silva welcome back to fall risk guys thank you for being thanks for having us again yeah super excited i mean we've been talking about doing this for a while like probably about a year now talking about you know uh recording some glory days content with the two of you talking about some training, those types of things. So like, it's finally here. I think it's, it's a little, um, long, uh, overdue, you know, long in the tooth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where are you guys recording from right now? Are you guys both in Colorado at the moment? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah are you guys back home? Are you in separate houses right now? <laughs> yeah. Or are you guys recording in the same facility? No. I wish we were in the same house, but yeah, we're in a different places. Just put the kids Once to upon bed. a time we lived together, but not anymore. That's true. Back in the collective days. That's fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, are you guys, Mikey, what are you doing out there right now? We know, we know Josh lives there, but what are you doing out there right now, Mikey? Visiting family during the winter, doing some tunnel camps, coaching, and uh, yeah, just enjoying work in Colorado. Okay, nice. Cool. Um, well, now that we got like the circumstances out of the way, you guys want to talk about what we came here to chat about? You want to get into it? Oh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, for anyone that doesn't know, these guys have known each other for years, like a couple decades now. Yeah. Close to it. Probably, uh, what, 18 years, Mike? I would say Maybe. that's about right. Yeah, it's been a yeah. long Damn. Like pretty much your whole adults, adult lives. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I met Mike, I think, when I was 28, maybe. And oh, okay. uh, it was right right about the time I started working at the wind tunnel. Um, so I started working there, I guess that was 2008. I don't know if that's 18 years. I'm not a mathematician, but uh, it's a long time ago. And uh, I worked there for a few months before Mike came on board. And so uh, I actually, funny story. I knew Mike's mom before I ever met him. I actually taught his mom to skydive and uh, she was always trying to hook me up with her son and I wasn't having it until I met him at the wind tunnel. And then I was sold. He's so great. Look at that smile. Like, like hook you up or just like hook you up. Who knows what she was. She said, you should hang out with my son. I think you guys would be best friends. And And I remember thinking, I got enough friends, lady. I don't think I need to meet your son. (laughs) But lo and behold, I did. And it was a a match made in heaven. Yeah, it's fate. Changed my whole flight career. It was destiny, man. Do you remember the day you met? Like the day you first met? Oh, I locked eyes with him (laughs) across the jumpsuits. I was laundering. He was drying. I don't know. We met at the wind tunnel. I'm positive. And uh, I remember one of my first thoughts was with Mike was um, I was like so angry at how easy FITP was for him because I didn't have any experience in wind tunnels before working at Sky Venture. And I uh, basically went through a one-on-one with Rusty Lewis, which is like the hardest FITP I could ever imagine. And then Mike comes in from uh, Las Vegas from uh, Flyaway. He did his entire FITP in like four days. 
I was so angry at him because I was just like, I was like, oh, I can't wait for the next FITP to come through here. I can just, I can, I can just laugh at him how difficult it is. And Mike did not give that to me. It was hilarious because it was the same feeling for me getting into skydiving. It was the reverse. I think everything from AFFI to canopy flight to exits took me five, six, seven hundred skydives for my tunnel skills to transition to the air. So it was like complete polar opposites of our entry to the sport of body flight. Mm-hmm. And to this day, it's like the we're equal and opposite skill sets. And <laughs> over time, it's merged to become just like greatness for both of us. Yeah. But in the beginning, it was definitely us playing off of each other's skills, getting into me That's getting into jumping from the tunnel and Josh getting into the tunnel from jumping. It's because flyaway isn't a wind tunnel. It's a trampoline. (laughs) Totally different animal. How was, what was working together like in those initial early days? Mike, you want to take that one? Because I got thoughts. (laughs) You know, I think it was a pretty carefree era and a sweet spot, like a golden era of wind tunnels for us. Where you were, there was a lot of creation and creativity, and our our different backgrounds from wind tunnels and introductions to the sport just uh, gave us the ability to like goof off. And when I think back on it, what when you ask what was it like to work together back then, I feel like it was a lot of flow state all the time. It was like a perfectly paired match of, you know, you'd go into the tube and eight or ten hours would pass by and you didn't even know it was mm-hmm. happening. It was just so much fun and you're in a constant flow state of learning and pushing the envelope and trying new stuff in a creative fun challenging way and there's so much new stuff to do and try back then so it was it was really neat there were a lot of mistakes made i think a lot of coaching gained a lot of lessons learned at the time as we were kind of paving the road for you know what tunnel flying and coaching's become and it's changed a lot since we started and i think uh Massive majority with us is, is I would say, t- completely for the better. Mm-hmm. And so that was awesome. Cool. Yeah, the uh, that era was when people think about wanting to work in a wind tunnel. I think that that era, the uh, like the 2008 to maybe 2012, 2013 era, that was what people imagine mm-hmm. it is. I mean, we when we first started – there was basically no limit on flight time. Mike and I would go in when there were no customers and we'd fly for like four hours straight. We'd just get out because we were bored. We'd like flown <laughs> for so long. Like, ah, I've had enough of this for today, which is such a foreign concept today. And back in that era also, it was such a heyday for coaching. We were encouraged to you know, be the best instructors that we could be, but also to be our own business and mm-hmm. to progress in the coaching industry and make a name for ourselves, which um, Scavenger Colorado was kind of an epicenter for a while. Uh, we had people coming from all over, from all across the country to come fly there because there were only, what was it, Mike, three or four wind tunnels in the U.S. at the time? Fast wind speed, yeah. Like yeah. stuff I was capable of doing sit and head down. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it was across the world. I mean, there were people in the Skyventure Colorado tunnel until the Texas location started opening 
for you know four or five year span during the boogie tour where we were the the fast weed uh fast wind speed wind tunnel for ratings for training for block time for coaching for management and flexibility and uh it just meant we got a ridiculous absurd amount of time in the wind and coaching for years of flight time and we were we were so encouraged also like to to build our own worth i remember being told once i was i was trying to figure out what to charge for coaching and rusty told me just charge whatever you feel like you're worth and i would look around i'd see like jason russell and brad cole mike silva Derek Prokoski, all these guys that had been flying for years and years and being relatively new. Like I, I was like, I don't know how I could possibly stack up to these guys, but over the years, especially bouncing off of Mike, he and I bounced a lot of coaching techniques off each other. Eventually i you know, grew into feeling like my coaching was worth industry standard and it was such a it was such a, a perfect environment to learn to coach. Um, I've said it before in the past that I feel like ninety five percent of the things I ever say coaching I stole from someone else, and I think mm-hmm. most really good coaches feel that way as well. And that was just such a, a perfect environment to take all of this industry information and apply it. You know, just put it like in a petri dish, and everyone. T- develop their own coaching styles that popped out of that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. At what point did you guys decide to become teammates in the middle of all this? <laughs> oh, that was uh, before, uh, I think that was, it had to be 2000 and either early 2009 or late 2008. We, we, our first competition was the summit challenge that was held at, uh, at scavenger Colorado. Correct, Mike. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of what year that was. It must have, yeah, it must have been like late 2008. We probably because we didn't have to, we didn't have to travel to compete the first time. And we competed at our home tunnel. And I think we did VFS, uh, two way. We did artistic and we may have done four way with someone else, but that was, I think that was the, uh, the birth of the team, but our, our real competition didn't start. I moved away from Colorado in 2009 and then came back in 2010 and our true competition run didn't start until 2010 when I came back. Okay. What was um, the progression of that part of your relationship? Like, was it any different than your normal working relationship? Did it just segue really, really smoothly into that? Or were there hiccups? Like, what was that like? You know, I think uh, there were some growing pains was like figuring out the rules and where to find like what you were supposed to do when it came to two AVFS or freestyle routines. And it was a lot of trial and error in the beginning where we would just have to figure it out and infer what we thought the rules were, make mistakes, have bus, learn through those issues mm-hmm. and perfect over time. And when you'd go to a competition and just be surrounded in that environment of which we, after that first competition at Colorado, we started going on a travel circuit, I think for almost a decade of competing in every single wind tunnel event that you could possibly could in as many events as we possibly could do for, you know, that period of time. And you'd see and pick up tricks and skills or coaching pieces or movements or engineering cheats from different teams to like add it to, to your bag of skills. And at a certain point, 
we started creating things we'd never seen before that just fit our flight style and body type and team dynamic mm-hmm. to to be better. And, you know, that's from engineering cheats and VFS to like threading skills and team flight routines that we had never seen before. Yeah. It was just the stuff that we felt was cool and challenging and looked great and was difficult to do. And then just kind of like build on that. And it was interesting back then the, there was full on freestyle rounds and VFS mixed together into two way free flight. I hated that. Ooh, that was I the worst. It. Why? You why, that? Was, why was that a thing? That's how it worked. That's they were a mix of skills to showcase your like like docking ability and relative work and also your free fly ability. I love it, but I don't think it's the pro and the con of it if it is it's too difficult to do for the average team or customer. The length of time it takes to create a free fly routine is for the elite working professional that has access to tunnel time, which I would argue that even modern tunnel instructors don't get. So yeah, there's a holdover from skydiving. Also, uh, totally. back in the day, skydiving free fly competition was, you know, they had like, I'm not sure what the breakdown was, but it was like a certain amount of it was VFS and a certain amount of it was free routine. And mm-hmm. Mike was always more of a free routine flyer. And I was always more into VFS, like something about the engineering and kind of the mechanical aspect of the teamwork just kind of agreed with me more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but luckily, I mean, we did have a, a good spread of skills. So in the few competitions that we competed that were like that, I think we did pretty well. I think probably the the uh, the biggest comp we did was the first, uh, the first FAI uh, world competition for tunnel flying, which it ended up not being an official world competition, but uh, it was kind of like a test event. And okay. that was... That was one of the biggest ones we competed where we had a free routine and uh, we took silver in that one. So it was pretty cool, but I was definitely more in my comfort zone. Once we got back to just doing straight VFS, it was just the mm-hmm. way that everything just kind of leaned for me. Okay. Interesting. How many, um, do you have any idea just off the top of your head, how many competitions you've been to together? Or I guess a better, a better question would be how many years were you actively competing together? Let me turn around and count the medals on the wall. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so humble People that, my that Josh Evans. Uh, I bet we probably did <laughs> 20 or 30 competitions together. Right. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Over yeah. the course of like 10 years, eight years, six years? What do you think? Well, I think it was we got to do the Gauntlet and Eloy, all the Colorado boogies, traveling tunnel events at Chicago, Houston. All the iFly events Paraclete. when I still held events. Paraclete, we did the New Hampshire um, wind tunnel meet. Uh, Florida, what else? From California for tunnel events. Seattle at Battle of the Blades when they mm-hmm. held that for two years. Um, I've so got at least twenty medals on the wall, but I'm I'm sure that uh, we did more than that. Um, yeah, it must have been. I mean, because we competed from 2010 to probably 2016, where okay. we were really going at it hard. Okay. And that was back when iFly was holding, uh, they would probably hold like four competitions a year. And I think we tried to hit every single one of them <clears throat> that we could. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, in your, in either one of your opinions, or maybe as a, as a team, what do you think are some of your major milestones 
like in your, in your time competing together? What are the things that you're the most proud of? What do you think, Mike? Um, I think something that sticks out a lot, that was just a huge, crazy, like mark in the sand or like, a yeah, putting a flag in the ground of like, wow, we've made an impact. There was a, a competition in Rosemont in Chicago during the iFly heyday. This is probably 2015, 2016, where they actually had cash prizes. They had a, like a Lexus sponsorship. Um, there are teams from all over the country. It was a new big 14. There we go. We <laughs> got, got a check, check on, on the wall. wall. <laughs> we got the giant check. And when I can tell came, a story about the check when you're done. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> when it came to uh, the events, every team in VFS, or excuse me, every difficulty in VFS, every single team on the podium was a team Josh and I trained that came from Denver to Chicago to compete. Every that team awesome. on the podium was a team that we trained. Us. And that was cool. No when one we were else holding podiumed. No one else even got close. This was an intermediate, advanced, and open. They were all teams that Josh and I had trained on the 2A VFS place. And then I had some freestyle students there. I competed in freestyle myself. And that was just absurd. It was a photograph of the entire podium of VFS was all of our So play. cool. So that that was an insanely crazy event. So I that that sticks out to me a lot. That's absolutely was incredible. I was right in the middle of the uh, of the uh, VFS uh, VFS night era. So we had probably eight or twelve teams that were just homegrown in Denver, which was really cool. Yeah, that was an incredible experience. What were we gonna say, Sam? Oh, I wanted to hear. I mean, first off, that's wild. Like I can't. That's not unfathomable to me, but I want to hear the story about the check. Tell me the, tell me the check story. <laughs> oh yeah. So they gave us this giant check, like a novelty check, which is really cool. I think any competitor would love to stand on a podium and receive a giant novelty check at some point. Um, and we hadn't competed in many events that gave out cash. I think the only other time was at Paraclete. Uh, so we got this giant check and then we're like, what the hell do we do with this thing? So we took it and we, we like went to the bar and we, Tacho, he kind of orchestrated this whole thing like, oh, hand it to the bartender. Like you're trying to take a, to, trying to buy drinks with it. And then, <laughs> and then we hold it like to the airport, like, oh, hand it to the baggage or hand it to the check-in counter. See if you can upgrade your flights. And then, oh, it's get a picture of you guys trying to cram it into overhead and it wouldn't <laughs> fit in there. And I was thinking like, oh, I'll just snap it in half and throw it in there. And then I'm glad <laughs> I didn't because... The last one, last picture I took it and I had it upside down in a little tiny trash can. And then it said, thanks, I fly. <laughs> it was like a collage that Tacho made of four things that we did with this novelty check, which was, oh man. And then I'm so glad I kept it because I ended up putting it up on the wall and I've yeah. it's been on my wall for like eight years now or something. Hanging up on the doorway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. Uh, in the past... You've had several teams and individuals that you top and shaped and eventually hit the competition stage. We just talked about this, about how satisfying it was having a moment like that. Um, how in historically speaking, right? Maybe it's different now. Maybe it's it's changed over the years. But historically speaking, how would you have typically taken a team from point A uh, where they haven't flown together regularly at all to point B to being ready to for a, or being ready for a competition stage? Like how would you normally 
do that? Like, what are some of the strategies that you would try and instill in those individuals? Um, do the strategies change across the board for dis for different disciplines, or are they um, overlapping? Do they overlap at all? I feel like it is discipline dependent. Um, for sure, we had the uh, VFS night for several years, which was like the, it was the ultimate breeding ground for VFS competitors. Mm -hmm. And what was so cool about that was Mike and I got we got to work together doing that, and we would we would start off every night with uh, kind of briefing the draw, explaining the rules to newer flyers, and then we would, since it wasn't like an official competition, we were able to adjust based on the people that were there, like if people could only sit fly, then we could adjust the draw and have them compete on an even level, as close as even as possible with the pro flyers. And so it was this awesome breeding ground. And over the course of several weeks, people would come in and they would, they would learn little pieces of the dive pool. And then they would start learning cheats because after every single competition, Mike and I, we would score it, we'd score busts. And then we'd also have a bunch of notes and break down all the things that you can improve, all the things that you did great. And it was kind of like an exposure therapy for VFS flyers. And we actually stole this idea from Waz in Austin. He was, he, he was hosting the first VFS night that I ever heard of. And uh, we talked to him pretty extensively about how he did it and just kind of transplanted his formula to Denver. Um, but that I'd say that that was uh directly related to the story that Mike told about Rosemont where everyone on the podium was a Denver team. But um, I think Mike and I have both also grown a couple of teams that w out of uh, non VFS night um, like Eagle bear. I don't know they may have competed quite a bit in, EF in VFS night back in the day, but I know you did a lot of training with them outside of that. And um Totally. I've currently got a team that I've been training for the last year and a half that's uh, slated to go up against you, Sam. At yeah, oh yeah, I know. Weeks. I'm so excited about. So, <laughs> like, how? What do you think about growing a team from the ground up? Like, what's a what's the technique that you would you would take? I feel like it's uh, I approach it and like everything I do is a bit more by feel and organic, where I would just try to be encouraging through coaching and the the VFS nights to just highlight their skills and strengths and try to see mostly who got along, who has a similar wind speed. And if they flew well, encourage them to come and keep coming to the VFS nights to get better. And then the education or the sale of it was like, hey, you can double the amount of flight time and spend the exact oh, same one. amount of money. Why wouldn't you take this up with somebody else who's passionate about it, shown up with the same dedication? and get something fun and having that little bit of edge competition there where there's a goal oriented with the progression would just push people the extra mile yeah. um, to get better and better and in vfs specifically that that those things made it really really attractive to pursue mm -hmm. and it was also kind of like this community of fun bragging rights to say you won that night and that you worked your way up from, you know, intermediate to advanced to open and we're just getting better and better with your skills. And then even letting people be the player coach where if we had a really good VFS flyer that was a customer, we just slapped them with multiple people. And it was all of a sudden they're flying three slots in a night instead of mm -hmm. two. And it, it was helping them learn to be the player coach and advance their skills and it was providing the new flyer with somebody amazing to fly with 
that would help them learn, you know, learn to be better was somebody great. It was like an honor to to get a fly with somebody else. So I think there were a lot of really obvious reasons to help encourage people to fly together financially, skill set wise, condensing the time frame, um, building a sense of community, having a competitive element. And the fact that it translates so well to skydiving, if you were a tunnel flyer and a skydiver, was just in, in incredibly helpful. Yeah. I would also say we were really, really good at, um, we call it the weekly warriors. I'm looking at the ad on Facebook and the first flyer we printed was from April of 2015. And um, we were able to just organize it in a way where it was uh, scrambles, meaning you could show up as an individual flyer and then get paired with someone else, which meant you didn't have to plan or organize much. But the difficulty of planning the night was up to Josh and I to pair pe- in 30 minutes, pair people up, give them the draw, dirt drive the draw, take the payment, get in the tunnel, fly and coach them through the rounds, do a speed check, fly three rounds, get out, score them, debrief the rounds, and have people out of there in like a 90-minute period of time, which was an incredible feat, I think, of skill, organization, and experience to make it happen right. Particularly pairing people up was very difficult. And then the second piece that was really, really hard as an organizer for the tunnel was to um, create draws that helped that was appropriate for the night. And so the way the VFS draws are set up isn't the best way or intro for people to learn. So Josh and I would essentially make up categories of draws to fit the flyers that were there. So we'd have just a belly back draw. We'd have a belly back with just sit flyers. We'd have what was called a mixed draw, which doesn't exist in the dive pool but it would be a draw where there would only be one flyer head down at a time. Then we'd have kind of like a basic mixed draw and then full on open. And so I have years and years of draws that we made that would were pre-built to fit all of these things. And Josh and I would do some nights that were burner rounds, like a, a what he would call a sprint round. We'd do some nights that were slot switchers. We'd do some nights that were um, heavy on blocks so like double taps with an over under double tap with the 360 so we just train our students by providing draws every wednesday that fit the skill set no matter where you were at made it easy to be a scramble made the price right and then like had the coaching and setup to, to make it functional and we built trust with everyone to just say you're you're doing this lot and you're flying with him and him or her and her for this reason, and people would just nod and go for it, and then mm-hmm. we could dirt dive everyone at the same time to to make it happen. And at the end of that, we produced a, a bunch of amazing teams and flyers, both Scott Aving and uh, Wind Tunnel for VFS, that went on to do big-time records, world records, to a VFS, onto MFS, like medalists, um, in different categories, and then a boatload of Wind Tunnel flyers that were just amazing at being a tunnel rat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was a lot going into it, and uh, I'd credit the VFS not only with our progression personally, going from an average tunnel instructor to something completely different, and for providing the students with the avenue to get get a lot of time and skills with other people that you just wouldn't get flying with a coach ever or flying by yourself. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna. I mean, all that's amazing information. Like it's a, it's a amazing how you have 
developed this like clockwork kind of methodology of like taking people from point A to point B, like just over the years and through repetition and trial and error, like just like it's an amazing system that you guys have like developed, right? Um, I'm I'm happy that you brought up the part where you would uh like essentially fix the dive flows or the 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 um the different dives or the different sorry where you would essentially fix the different draws every night during a VFS league to make it more accessible for people who have never experienced that. Like, I'm glad that you brought that up because I thought about it as you started talking um, about historical things that you have just done. I was like, man, I think it's really important to bring that up because it's not just about like exposing that people to something brand new or something this that's like super cool to you guys. It's about how do I make this accessible to people and push them in the right direction, right? That's a huge thing that I remember you doing um, just from the VFS leagues that we did at Minneapolis. And I think too, I vaguely recall this happening at Denver when we were going through FITP and you guys encouraged us yeah. to go through the VFS league at that time mm -hmm. too, as well. Um, and actually I, <laughs> I hope someday that Brad and I get to, uh, um, compete at some point. We had the best team name ever. I don't know if you recall this, but Sally, she ended up looking at us at one point. She's like, what's your team name? And we were like, salmon bread and she's like oh i thought it was salmon bread like i thought it was like <laughs> salmon bread and i was like oh no but i looked at brad i was now. like i was like it it's is now bread. like that's our team that's disgusting <laughs> but i love it so at some point i hope we get a we get a chance to compete because like that team name's amazing and you can't let it go to waste but i vague like i recall during both in both of those scenarios like being being able to look at this task that at the time was very complicated and a little bit overwhelming and feeling just a little bit more relief over the fact that you guys were catering to our skill sets, you know, and that you guys were making things easier for the people who were involved and not having it be so overwhelming. I don't know. I'm sure you guys have heard this, but like people will look at competitors or people who are training or people who are at a certain level and they're like, I'm never going to get to that point. Like, I don't understand how you got to that point. I don't understand how uh, you got over the initial hump of figuring this out. Like if you have the right trainers and the right, the right coaches and the right instructors, they're going to make it easy for you. They're going to figure out how to like get you there, you know, in the, the least confusing way possible. Like, I think it's, an, I think it, I get, that was just one thing that stuck out to me while you were talking and it, I wanted, I was happy that you said it because I was like, I, I want to make sure he mentions this at some point. Um, anyway, thank you. Thank you for that very in-depth explanation. I really appreciate that. Um, it was the salmon bread spawning ground. <laughs> yeah, man. I hope Brad listens to this and is like, yeah, let's get it. Let's get the band back together. Uh, anyway, as someone who has finally, after 15 years of skydiving, finally going to her first competition ever. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I am finding uh, that there are certain things that I and I think my teammate is also struggling with a little bit. Now, I don't know how comfortable now, <laughs> now that I'm now that I'm thinking about this, I don't know how comfortable I am saying this in front of Josh, to be super real. I feel like he might use this to his advantage and let his. <laughs> well, I don't know. I might have to tell my team about this. What are you going to say? Um, I am finding that the mental game, the mental side of this is probably the hardest part. Of, com of competing um it, in in relation to, to competition in general it's not the flying skills that gets you it's the mental you know game that you're playing with yourself specifically like all that added pressure on how you perform in front of 
people who know what you're doing. It's one thing to go and do this and practice weekly on a weekly basis in front of a bunch of woofos, woofos who don't know what you're doing, who don't have any context for what it is you're supposed to be, you know, doing in any in any given time. Um, but like it's it's an entirely different thing when you are in front of a whole bunch of other people who know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, who can sit there and analyze you in real time as you're performing in a big glass tube that you can see through. Um, and I I just didn't give it any thought when I initially had asked, you know, my teammate, Jeremy, about whether he not and whether or not he he wanted to train. The first time that we really the first time at least I encountered it was when Mikey came to watch us at the tunnel for the very first time. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is also something that I need to be concerned about or think about or at least have a plan with how I'm going to prepare myself. It's unexpected. It takes you by surprise. You don't understand why you didn't perform well in real time if you didn't give it any thought ahead of time. Like, The more I think about this, the more I'm like, man, when we're there, what kind of pressures am I going to be experiencing? How do I help my teammate through those potential pressures, you know, that we're not talking about, but we feel anyway? Like, how would you prepare someone for that moving forward? Like, in an actual competition set. <laughs> um, two words. Go first, Josh. Oh, well, I'm sure you are familiar with this. Being a tunnel instructor helps a lot because oh, yeah. Yeah. You spend so much time standing in the wind with your trainers observing you. Yeah. Um, for a non-tunnel instructor, I really think that the best way to do it is, again, it's just exposure therapy. Just trying to simulate as closely as possible what's going to happen during the competition on during your training. Mm -hmm. And what you should really be trying to figure out is how to get over that feeling. Because yeah. if you get wrapped up in that, there's always going to be someone watching that is that knows more than you, that's more experienced, that's better than you, or that at least that you think is on that level. Mm -hmm. You may still beat them, but there's always going to be someone watching. Yeah. So uh, the the best thing to do is just train the material to the point where you're not worried about your performance anymore. And if you are still worried about your performance, like talk to coaches. You guys happen to have Mike available, and he can tell you if you're doing things correct or if you need to uh, if you need to fix them. Mm -hmm. And that's very good. But when you go into train, I would try to simulate a competition as close as possible. Like go in and practice doing a speed check, and then go in and simulate like you know four to six rounds of competition, and only do them once, and mm -hmm. score yourself, you know, based on your first performance. And uh, Another uh, kind of another thing to think about at competition, and we I don't think I figured this out for a long time, was that the other competitors at a competition, especially the people that are competing in your class that are competing against you, they're probably not watching you hmm. because they don't want what you are doing to infect their mind, to make you make them think that, oh, did we engineer this wrong or did we get the draw yeah. wrong? Or are just something. Do we do something wrong because they're doing it differently than us? Mm -hmm. So you'll see a lot of competitors, um, especially people that are like kind of experienced with competing, just mm -hmm. kind of sitting in the antechamber with their heads down, just thinking about their own uh, their own job. Mm -hmm. You might get some people on the outside that are done with their rounds that are watching, but 
that can really never be anything but a good thing, especially yeah. if these are like highly experienced people, because that's like a resource that you can draw on afterwards. That is how we learn so much about VFS, going to the competitions, getting schooled by people that were better than us, and then just sitting around afterwards and like talking theory with them. And mm -hmm. afterwards, you're going to find that people just want to give you all the theory they have. <laughs> people are excited to know all this stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What Performing are your two words, Mike? Performance anxiety. Sorry. Oh. Words and yeah, well, I think two thoughts and then just a comment. I'm really focused on making it simpler and helping you be successful. So my coaching would be one: focus on sentence structure. Yeah. Oh, it's so big. It you changed everything. Get that, yeah, single syllable, simple words that you identify with to not brain fart. Mm -hmm. So sentence structure, dial it in. This is how you're going to win at VFS and get over that fear, the tube, the new tunnel. Nothing matters but your sentence structure. The second thought would be, or the coaching piece would be focus on one draw at a time. Nothing else exists. And the moment it's over, it's dead. It's gone. It doesn't matter. You're past it and move to the next round. Mm -hmm. One round at a time. That is all that matters in the universe during a comp. Nothing else matters. And you just move on to the next one. Wipe mm -hmm. the slate clean. Wipe the slate clean. Don't watch video. Don't watch other teams. Go to a different room and just start dirt diving for your next round and visualizing with sentence structure. Mm -hmm. The sentence structure, keep it simple, focus on one round at a time. And then the third thing is nobody in the world is going to judge you more harshly than Josh or I at VF, <laughs> VFS in the tunnel. There's no Except one. Except maybe yourself. Yeah. 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 Outside of your team. So so go and have fun with it. And you just got to, it's, it's a situation where you're, Nothing will fake or replace the actually competing, mm -hmm. and you just need to do more competitions. Okay. Um, so, like, literally, progress is is the is the winner of everything. Progress is the goal, and just by showing up at doing it, you're better than Sam. Fourteen years in the past of not yeah. doing competitions, <laughs> and it'll just become easier and more fun. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about sentence structure, Mike? Because I, yeah. I think there might be some people that are uh, that are listening that don't use that technique. Um, but that was something that I don't think we, we, that's one of the things I don't think we stole from anyone. We may have developed that on our own, but, um, so like typically with, uh, VFS, you know, they'll use the letters and the numbers, but to me looking at the two way VFS dive pool and it's like BB one, BB two, BBA, BBC, whatever. Like that was, you see, it was such a leap from three letters, three syllables of letters to the picture of what the point is to flying it. And like in four way, you know, like an A, E, J, like it's really easy to remember because it's, they're all single syllables, but in two way, it's not like that. And so Mike and I, we developed a technique. I know that you're probably training this way, Sam, mm -hmm. um, because it has been battle tested and it works on every team that uses it but uh we just kind of threw the letters and numbers out the window we did, never even bothered to memorize them and we would create a shorthand for each point like a vice versa would become a vice vertical compressed become a vert uh mick side body was a mick for us mm -hmm. and uh we would create these sentence structures so we would take the draw the letters whatever they would give us we would translate it down to what the actual points are. And then 
based on those points, we would create our sentence structure. And by doing that, you're creating a single syllable, possibly sometimes a double syllable per uh, per point. And you're just saying that phonetic device over and over in your mind, like vice, vert, foot, like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And we found that it became almost impossible to get lost at that point. And when we did brain fart, it was like, it was like a monumental event for us because it almost never happened with using a sentence structure technique. And then yeah. we went on and we taught pretty much everyone that went through VFS night that technique. I teach my teams today that technique. I'm sure Mike is teaching that to you. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely like the the proof is there because the teams that use that, like Mike said earlier, they went on and dominated the podium like an entire competition. Like it was such a – it was such like a – a proof of concept when a, you know the Denver contingent came and swept the podium in 2016 because everyone was using that technique and I think talking about that to other people probably people other teams may have taken that use to themselves mm-hmm. and yeah, that so was a really I think important a, thing. a great example would just be to share a complex long name draw into a sentence structure so I would just say for a, a, an open level five point draw vert warp joker flip mm-hmm. would would be my sentence structure um what is that vert warp joker flip vert warp joker flip that'd be a vertical compressed uh joker a mind warp and a grip flip grip uh-huh. so that's a five point draw three randoms and a block but instead of saying those long multiple syllable things i would shorten it into simple almost single syllable words where it was easy to repeat in a cycle mm-hmm. and after you get the draw and you engineer that i would have my own cheat sheet to write that out and i would denote that it's totally okay for different team members to have different sayings for their totally. sense structure based on their slot or how their brain thinks yeah so it's like one of those things where i'm gonna say something and you or show you a picture and you pick the first word that comes to mind and mm-hmm. so when i think of our slots in a in a warp or whatever, I would always be the sit flyer and Josh would be head down. You know, um, I would think of head up a lot, or I would think of, you know, head. So my uh-huh. sense might be like head, foot, flip, vert, or something uh-huh. like that. And so eventually you start to learn yourself and what your brain identifies as the first thing as you're going through engineering. And my cheat sheet for the round would be the sentence structure, very, very simply of four or five single syllable words representing that pattern so my head could read the sentence going through the pattern to not get confused and at an open class you know gold medal level you're doing a 30-ish point average if 30 is high sometimes we did more than that but you know 28 29 point average you're doing so many points it's it's point per second ish Uh you don't have time to be confused or you blow the lead yeah and so it's really really important to learn sentence structure and develop it and cater to what you think naturally and then use that in your your training or the competition to not get confused and make mis- and not make mistakes. Yeah. And then at a certain point too while you're dirt diving it not saying it out loud. So you're not screwing up your partner. Exactly. Right? Correct. Yeah. You don't want to screw yeah. up your partner. So <laughs> I remember that difference. from VFS League <laughs> at Denver. Like that was one I took away. Like don't say it out loud. <laughs> um Yeah. I mean, all of that is like fantastic information. I think something that I, so I knew this as a tunnel instructor when I was active, 
we've had many conversations about it, about how certain words will trigger different images in people's brains, right? So you having a whole bunch of different ways to explain exactly the same concept, like definitely helps, you know, because you don't ever know what is going to click. It's the same idea as one one instructor might not necessarily, one instructor's method might not necessarily click with the way you learn, right? It's the same idea here. What I have been finding is that now in a in an environment where I am being coached again, right? Or I am learning a new skill. I am finding that I am running into that same problem (laughs) where certain things just don't click for me. And I'm like, I don't, I am doing what you're asking me to do, or I am doing the thing I'm, I'm being tasked with. I think I'm doing it. And then someone says something slightly different and I'm like, oh, I get it. (laughs) Okay. I understand what this is. And I think I'm finding that too, as well with my die flows where I am hardwired to end like to say certain things in my brain and it doesn't happen often but occasionally it will where I'll brain fart in the middle of in in the middle of the tunnel because I get distracted or I'm not thinking about whatever the next thing is so like all of those little details of like simplify it break it down into the the smallest amount of uh, letters that you need to use or single syllable like those are all really great tricks um just listening to you guys go back and forth about how you would do it it I've heard you talk about it, but for whatever reason, just now, it suddenly made more sense <laughs> than, than previous conversations conversations that we've had. Um, just to clarify something, too, like when you are coming up with those words, it doesn't necessarily have to do with whatever the name of the, the you know, the point is. It could be whatever it is that comes to mind, right? Like you said, yes. Sometimes your sentence structure might be based around like the cheater grip you're taking. Okay. You know, um, thumb down or, you know, like all kinds of weird pieces to make the answer. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part, it would be a reference to the point. But if you have like a specific cheat in there, like we had some names for cheats, like we had, uh, you know, like a twister was a, t- was a type of cheat that we would use. It was a certain grip that we would use. And uh, like a transition cheat was mm-hmm. a name of a cheat for doing like a soul to soul to a vice versa. Instead of doing a level change, we would both transition. And so I might say something like like trans cheat in my head or something as a shorthand for utilizing that tool there. Um, and so sometimes I might have an additional thing thrown in the middle if there was like a specific cheat. Um, but a lot of times for me, I think that it was a, a direct reference to the name of the point. Okay. Interesting. I I think I I don't know if I'm not actively giving enough time and energy to name or say it in my brain or say it out loud at least once so I know what the word is going to be. I feel like I have a tendency to lean more towards the visual I guess, of what I'm supposed to be grabbing, if that makes sense. I don't know. Like the hand or the foot or something? Yeah, yeah. So, like, th- there are certain things, like, there are moves that I do where it's like a one-two, right? Like, where I take one piece and then I reach across and grab the next piece. And I'm... Backfly in, star. Yeah. That's in one my, of those points. In my brain, I say to myself, one-two. I don't necessarily say hand-foot, you know? Or or if it's like a... Like, one that kept coming up in our in our... Uh, draws was a hands to feet and then a hand to foot. And I would say feet, foot, 
right? Like back That's and forth. That's exactly what it is so, right there. So <laughs> like, I don't necessarily think about the name. I think about what it is, like where my hands are going to be, how I'm positioned. And I, those are the words that I use on a regular basis. Like if we're doing an outface, uh, like an outface double, like a head up one, I'll usually say something like hand fist, you know, because I'm the one that's presenting um, or, you know, any one of those different combinations. I usually am thinking more about the body parts that I'm looking at, not necessarily the the name of the, the point itself, but that's just me. I, one thing that I wish um, I had a better skill set, I guess, to, was to help my teammate. Because I, I, that is the part that I struggle with the most is talking my way through the, you know, through the, through the whole process. And I imagine he's also probably struggling with that too, as well. And I, I don't know how to, it, you know what I mean? Like when, when I can tell he's struggling with it, or if I can tell like he's, you know, stumbling over the words, like in real time, I'm like, man, I don't know how to help you. (laughs) Like, I don't know how to make this easier. Go ahead. Sorry. I got some write tips the too long, done. Yeah. <clears throat> write the longhand draw out and okay. you each have your own whiteboard. So you agree on what the draw is. Okay. Then go away and write your own shorthand for what it is. Okay. Then come back together and dirt dive it without talking. Right. And then you can compare notes on what you picked mm-hmm. based on your slot. It's a very simple thing. And I think there's some brain, body, mind, memory connection of when you physically write the shorthand of your own handwriting mm-hmm. and you see your own handwriting of what the sentence structure is, then you will think about seeing it written down while yeah. you're in the tunnel applying it. And it'll be easier for a, it's a mix of learning elements, kinesthetic, visual, audio, mm-hmm. um, written, where if you read and study and look at your own handwriting of the shorthand sentence structure, you do not mess it up. Okay. And what I do is, you know, do the draw, take your own whiteboards and go to your own space visualize and think about what you're thinking about the most and do the shorthand, then come back together and dirt dive it without talking. I'm pretty confident this will change your brain farting almost instantly. I hadn't even thought about like the, like looking at your own handwriting, but that totally makes sense. Like I've, I know that I've done that in the past where I've visualized what the word is because I've been the run to write it out. Like somebody has to pass a lot of tests. (laughs) And memorize a <laughs> lot of information. This is an amazing way to do it. Okay. Study your own written handwriting and like the physical act of doing it, seeing your own handwriting, studying your own handwriting. It'll totally change out how, how you, it'll eliminate brain farting. You okay. won't make mistakes. Okay. So. Mm-hmm. And Jack? also, um, so creating like practice draws and practicing shorthanding them because the more draws that you shorthand, the more you'll learn about how your mind works with shorthand and the sentence structure. So just like do a random draw and then get up and kind of like walk it yourself and think about what's, what's like the image your mind is giving you for each one of these points. It might be, Oh, this is, I'm grabbing feet. Okay. This one I'm going hand fist. So you start to develop your own sentence structure and shorthand in your mind. Mm -hmm. So that's really important to understand how your own mind works. And then when you are walking it with your teammate, only walk it at the speed that you think you can fly it, or maybe even walk it a little bit, a little bit slower than you think you can fly it. (laughs) So you remember how everybody goes too fast. I I know. No, 
No, no, no. That's not it. Okay. So, so you remember how I just said certain words clicked like versus other phrases? So for a long time, Mikey has been telling us as a team, walk it how you would fly it. And we're like, we are <laughs> like, we are walking it how we're flying it. And the other day he used the word uh, pacing. He was like, pace it how you would fly it. And we're like, oh, <laughs> okay. This makes total sense. Why didn't it click until just this point? Like, of course you don't mean actually walk it like you would fly it. You mean pace it. Is that really how fast you're going to fly it? No, it's not how fast you're going to fly it. No. And that, that day was the best day of flying we've ever had. Like as soon oh, yeah. as that clicked, it was like, Oh, okay. But you will anyway. never be better than your dirt diving. Your <laughs> dirt diving is like one of the most important skills. You never, you will never fly around better than you can dirt dive it because you can, once you really know what you're doing, you can dirt dive like five times faster than you can walk. And mm -hmm. so you get into like a, a dangerous position where you're like, oh, look how fast we're going. You get in the tunnel and it feels completely different. Yeah. So like slow it down. And then something that's really important when you're walking two-way specifically they don't mm -hmm. four-way doesn't really do this because there's not really enough room with four people to do this but if you are the head down flyer you should actually i'm going to stand up and show you how i stand whenever i stand like this yep <laughs> so i've got my head as far down as i can get it upside down and then both hands out in front of me so my hands are upside down and my head is upside down so now when i'm walking i'm looking at the other mm -hmm. person from an inverted position because that's really important and then if you're both head down you just both stand up mm -hmm. normally because that's what head down flying is if you start thinking about head down flying is your right side up and the world is upside down it's way mm -hmm. easier to conceptualize what's right and what's left so it's important to walk it that way mm -hmm. and then uh as you're as you're walking it also make sure you know that you are you're targeting you're looking at the certain parts of the body and as you complete each point you're saying the thing from your sentence structure in your mind as you complete it. And if you slow down your walk, if you walk it from an inverted perspective as a head down flyer, and then you repeat your sentence structure over and over and over, eventually you'll just get to the point where you're like walking stuff in your mind when you're, you know, not even, you're not even at the tunnel. You're not even in a, in a flying environment. You're just like dirt diving things in your mind. And mm -hmm. do you do, I've always been curious about this, Mike. Do you have a, a a visualization technique? Because when I was doing MFS, I you spend a lot of time in the plane, so I developed this really. I, I felt like it was very useful. It was almost like a virtual reality visualization technique. So I would visualize every single draw. At least I, I visualize like in a three, uh, like a three visualization pattern. So I would do a first person visualization and then I would do a third person and then another uh, first person. And first person is really easy to visualize it because you're just looking from your own perspective. But the third person I found was one of the most useful things about visualizing. So when I first started skydiving, I was in uh, art school for computer animation and in computer animation, you use a lot of uh, it, it's a lot of virtual spaces. So mm -hmm. like your, your raw, you know, this, you're an artist. Yeah. Uh, your, your raw file in a, uh, 3d program is just like a gray grid 
on the floor and then you have like access lines x y and z and so i would visualize that kind of environment and then i would have a a red flyer and a green flyer and i'd be the red my teammate would be the green and i would visualize it all the way from like the exit and i would try to see these little like 3d men in my mind and i would visualize like the grips and the transitions and i after doing that i got to the point where i could actually like i could see which way that the the draw was going to rotate based on the cheaters that we were going to take and it's pretty much like if you're doing right hand cheater grips and you're coming together to close you're pretty much going to be rotating clockwise the whole time like a 45 degree clockwise rotation for every cheater grip that you take in the sky at least that's the way that it shook down for our team but do you did you use any visualization techniques like that either one of you guys <laughs> you no. go ahead you go first mikey i i think from doing like gymnastics and diving growing up and doing a lot of freestyle I had to be built that way to figure out how it looked and be judged from a, a diff degree of difficulty standpoint, a degree of rotation, a body position, pike, tuck, et cetera, where I, I was visualizing that. I was watching video from an early age, comparing video feedback to my performance and just applying that to skydiving and tunnel flying, um, I think gave me an extra edge. What helped for me I did a lot of first person visualization, especially for the sky and for the tunnel with all the trick flying and cheats we did and like flip twists and all the different movements that are part of flying, where I would try to visualize what it would look like out of my eyeballs when I was actually flying it. Mm -hmm. And where was the net? Where were the lights? Where where was the other flyer? What was the, you know, the top of the glass? Just so I could like feel in my head what the visual is going to look like. And I also, I, I heard like a meditation technique once about just being able to focus on something like an image in your mind and it could be anything. And like the moment you break focus on that thing, it's like a willpower training exercise to, to just train your brain to focus on stuff longer. So I would try to visualize the whole draw for like 35 seconds. Could I actually have my brain focus on flying through the draw and actually see and think about how the wind would feel on my head or my shoulders or my back as I was going through a transition. And like my brain struggles to jump to what's next. I'm always mm -hmm. impatient and trying to jump to what's next. And I'd have to say like, no, 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 slow down and visualize actually what it's going to feel and look like when you're doing this draw of, you mm -hmm. know, cradle, head up, out faced, soul to soul, like some complex ridiculous open draw how would it actually feel what was the pacing and what would it look like through my eyeballs and if i could actually fly through a page that was like a major win for me and then it would get easier and easier to lock it in so for me you know there were there were layers to it but right when we were in the the seating area getting ready for our turn to compete I would be internally thinking about how to, what would it look like to actually see flying through the draw and how would the wind feel on my body? That was like my big thing to visualize. What about it. the sound? You ever, you ever ima totally. imagine the, the more the real I, pitch? The more real I could up. make it better. Sound was a big one. Feel of wind was a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I don't know. That, that was my visualization technique. There's and so we watched so much video and we judged so much, Sam. Yeah. That we just making draws and, you know, 
if we had 12 teams doing three rounds each, we'd be judging 36 rounds in half an hour, live scoring and taking notes on coaching and debrief. Mm-hmm. Literally years, years of doing that back to back. And so that just made it so we could see it well. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, there's so much to unpack right there. There's so many things that you just mentioned that I've never even thought of. <laughs> like, I'm not, it's never, I, I might have like had moments where I was unconsciously thinking about it. Like the, the feel of the wind one, that one resonates with me a little bit more. There are certain things that I'm doing in the wind where if I, I can feel the wind in a certain way, I know I'm doing it right you know, but I'm not thinking about it ahead of time. You know, it's just like in the moment, like, yep, I know it's right. Like, I know it's correct. Go ahead. I would love to share and think it would be awesome to take a step back and introduce or talk about Josh and I creating together what we call the body flight players guide. Sure. Mm. Okay. Let's talk about you're, it. Talk, you're talking about how do we think about that? How yep. did we grow to here? How do we get there? Long, long time ago, we were approached by Sky Venture at the time and IBA about revamping and recreating the the body flight, flight progression. Flow, yeah, the flight mm-hmm. progression. The flow chart that you see today um, took a lot out of our playbook of what Josh and I thought the flight chart should be. And so we sat down and thought about how you should train us. This was pre our VFS era or kind of in the beginning of it about how would you teach someone to fly the best you possibly could if given total freedom. Mm -hmm. And so we created something we call the body flight player's guide. And I remember us sitting down and if we had a perfect student, um, how would you make them amazing at flying? And this was pre-dynamic too, before there was even really a name for it. And so we ended up like over months, months and months and months of time. It almost was like- So many flashcards taped to the wall. Yeah, we had we had flashcards. I'm serious. Flashcards <laughs> of all the different maneuvers that we thought that were in our house that we lived at together. Taped Closest to- we ever came to creating a murder board. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm picturing right now. <laughs> right my hands are up. I'm like, God, this is like a scene out of like a murder mystery suspense thriller. And they're like the detectives. Anyway, continue. Sorry. And so there there were hundreds of these cards, and each card had a title and a name a base body position, a wind speed it operated at, and our different thoughts for how and where it would be. And we would sit down at that house, which of which there were four trainers, four level four instructors living together who had been in the industry since, you know, 99. I started in the tunnel in 04. Josh was skydiving before me. All And, you know, Brett was in the wind tunnel at like 14 or something insane. And so we would just sit there and have discussions about what tunnel lifers about where things would go and have like everything from like, Oh, that's a really interesting opinion to a heated argument about how you are totally wrong. And that shouldn't belong there. And in time we created what we called the body flight players guide. Cause we're video game nerds and loved reading the uh, video game players guides that would like tell you how to beat a game. Mm-hmm. This was our body flight players guide to tell you how to beat tunnel flying. <laughs> And we came up with what we called the order of operations or O cubed, which was like the right order to shape things. And a lot of it, you know, it started as belly back, sit head down. But what it really progressed to was wind speed. This was pre-dynamic wind speed, slow to fast, and then mixing in all the different transitions and being really specific about degree of transitions. 
we came up with whole lesson plans of maybe you could talk more about this, Josh. This was like something you were really good at explaining. We had concepts. We had lessons versus like flight lessons versus concepts. We had parasitic concepts, like things that would eat away at your skills. And it just helped us think about and organize flying at a crazy high level where we were putting together a project for SkyVenture at the time to be the body flight flow chart. And it didn't come to pass. And the chart you see today is a lesser version of pieces of that and still needs drastic improvement. But man, it helped us think about how to teach and coach and order flying to make it actually function. I, I believe that if a student isn't getting something, it's because you're out of order. You're mm -hmm. missing, if you're struggling, then you've introduced a concept or a skill that's too big of a jump or a gap between what you want them to do and what they're capable of. That's the coach's fault for not knowing what the mid-step is. And if you're coaching right, everything should just work and click and for the most part be a pretty efficient path. I sent you a file, Sam. I just got a, it. <laughs> I just it was, got it. Is, it. is this the original file? <laughs> yeah. It was a, yeah, I found oh, a oh file. It, Truth in Flight, the Body Pilot Player's Guide. Oh, my uh, God. It was just our, our, our rough draft that we had started writing down. We had created, man, we created uh, fully art-directed page designs and everything. It was something that... Player's Guide. Yep, it's pretty much what it was. But um, I think like... I think the most important thing to come out of that was the concepts. There were uh, there are three concepts that I still use today. These are like these are like my foundations of any new student that I get. Okay. Um, I teach them three concepts because it's helpful down the road to have these things to reference. Because in my opinion, these are things that work that apply across the board. So mm -hmm. like the three concepts of just a a, a quick. Uh, breakdown. The first one is called head and hips. And it's the idea that the head and the hips are connected. When you're not standing on the ground, wherever your head goes, your hips are going to move the opposite direction. So in the beginning, this is why you tell like a, a first timer to go chin up because it tricks them into arching. But you can also trick your body into de-arching. You can trick your body into getting your torso out of alignment by looking over your shoulder and your hips shifting the opposite direction. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You can make your body do the proper things with your hips by moving your head. Head goes up, hips go down. Head goes down, hips go up. But it can also be a problem if you're, like, let's say you're head switching too early and you don't understand how this concept applies. Now your hips are shifting all over the place. And, th and that is why with a first-time student, when they're, like, looking over their shoulder at their friends on the outside, they start side-sliding the opposite direction because their hips shift the opposite direction. So head and hips is the first, that's the, that's the foundation of all flying. And then the second concept, which seems anytime I tell someone this in the beginning, they're like, oh, that's so simple. But once you start seeing how it connects to head and hips, you're like, oh, that just unlocks 70% of the code of flying. Like the second concept is flats and angles. So when you fly, your body is only made of two types of surfaces, flat surfaces and angled surfaces, flat surfaces lift you up. Angled surfaces deflect wind and move you towards the low side of the angle. And that seems painfully rudimentary. But when you start thinking about head and hips, now vertical flying starts to make sense. Because now you start to understand like, oh, I can move myself like using my whole torso by shifting my head back and my hips forward. Or 
If I want to do like a small turn, I can just angle like my forearm and I can do a slow turn. And then the third concept is the two headings. So when you are, when you're flying, you have two types of headings, your visual heading, which is where you're looking and your flight heading, which is where you're going. And like to simply break that down, like your flight heading, let's say you're on your belly, your flight heading, draw like a triangle from your shoulders pointing forward. And that's the direction you're traveling. That's forward. If you're on your back, it's a little bit more complicated, but it basically aligns with your torso, forward and backwards aligns with your torso. And then when you're on your feet, draw that triangle between your hips. That's the direction you're traveling. And then when you're on your head, draw it between your shoulders. That's the direction you're traveling. And by using head and hips, flats and angles, and your two flight headings, you can pretty much pick apart like almost everything that happens when someone's flying. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if like, I don't know how many people break it down like specifically in their mind, but understanding those things, even like on a a basic level is why tunnel instructors get so good, even when they're not in the wind, they're just sitting in the driver's booth, they're watching people fly. And even if you're not saying it in those terms, you're still looking at like, Hey, what surfaces are making this guy drive forward? Oh, why did that guy roll roll over? Why is he going in opposite direction of the way he's trying to turn? And you can break all those things down to three concepts, head and hips, flats and angles, and the two flight headings. Yeah. Those are all things, like, it's exactly what you said. Like, as someone who has sat there and driven for hours, you know, just watching people, watching people, breaking it down, like, trying to give advice through the glass and being like, no, don't make him do that. Like, no, it's going to cause this. It's going to cause X, Y, Z. Like, they are not things that I've thought about in those terms, but they are things that I have observed over time, right? Like I have not created the connections verbally in the way that you guys have, or you, you've had eons of time to, to figure out how to communicate effectively about this, but you're absolutely right. Like you get to a certain point and you're just watching for it. You're waiting for it. You're breaking down things. Like when you watch them go successfully or go wrong, like you're running through it in your brain exactly how you're supposed to be fixing the sol- or fixing the problem or why it was successful like you're you know um yeah like those i've never thought so explicitly about it i guess um but it makes total sense when you say it out loud it's just a matter of how do i break it down in a way that i can convey that to somebody else you know we can just steal all those words i just said yeah well i mean <laughs> <laughs> How many times did I have to give my tandem speech in order for me to do it blindfolded with my ears totally. plugged? You know, like, yeah. that's I a speech I've given a thousand times. times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yes, <laughs> yes, I I understand exactly what you're saying, and those are all very, um, very good things for people to think about. You know, um, I I would hope that I feel like I'm at a slight advantage over some of the listeners that are maybe paying attention to this because I've had the opportunity to practice some of those things in real time, even if I'm not mentally identifying them as those tasks or as those ideas. Um, I would Mm -hmm. hope that the folks that are listening right now can at least visualize part of it. So they're like, oh, epiphany, you know, like, I get it. I understand that. Um, But yeah, lots of things to think about with that. Thank Indeed. you for bringing us all the way back around. I was really stuck on like the um <laughs> the the murder wall. <laughs> there. I was really stuck. Like while Mikey was talking about the connections and like this is how all the things go together. I just imagine like one of you <laughs> like taking a red a red string and tying it to the next thing and like you just got an entire wall full of red strings like this is how this connects to this and this and like when you guys disagree someone snips the <laughs> you know anyway. Sorry. Oh, and it's insane over here, Mike. Too much I was, red string. 
I was visualizing a strange, a strange scenario. Um, there, there was a point where a ladder came out and we had to move <laughs> hundreds of cards up to add on layers below it. Oh no. It into That's when they invented side flying. We had, had a whole new category. <laughs> it, it, oh, that no. process and thinking about it though, it's like a, just really, really interesting. I think it's like an Einstein quote, but it's like, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Mm -hmm. And then going through that process of understanding it better, then we could bring it back to and explain it simply so, yeah. so much easier. And I've always hated those who can't do teach because it's like, man, you really need to be able to do it if you want to be able to teach it. Yeah. You really need to have a very, very crisp understanding of what it is you're trying to convey. Sometimes actually now in dog training, there will be like some really advanced concepts that I don't teach very often, like <laughs> things that like, like right now I'm taking an advanced class through for the first time in like a year. We just don't, I just haven't had an, a class of advanced, you know, dogs yet. Um, and I've got more dogs than I've ever had in an advanced class all at the same time. And there are certain things that are popping up where I'm like, how do I teach this again? I'm like, oh no. Um, I've gone back to the basics of doing some of the things that I've done in the tunnel where I'm reviewing the material way ahead of time. I'm writing notes. I'm circling things that I know I need to touch on. Like going back to like some of the skills that I learned at the tunnel under Mikey in terms of like simplifying things down, you know, and having talking points that I know I need to like bring up. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's interesting <laughs> think thinking about like dog training because – I'm sure dog training, I don't know how to train a dog, but uh, I'm sure it's a lot about understanding dog psychology. And it's like, that's what it seems like, you know, like the way that skydiving will turn you into an amateur meteorologist, tunnel flying turns you into an amateur psychologist because you really have to be able to understand, like, why is this person feeling this way about themselves? Why do they, why do they feel elated or why do they feel... Yeah. bummed on themselves and so much of like coaching is when people start to get too deep in the hole you know like figuring out a way to bring them out of it and you can express that through flying but also like the pre-brief and the debrief are so important for that also because you really start to understand like the psychology of your students and yeah that changes the way that you would coach them you know if someone <laughs> if you know someone happens to get down on themselves you have to coach around that Mm -hmm. uh, so this is now a dog training podcast for anyone listening. <laughs> uh, so, so the, the problem that I have run into in that area, in that area of like being a trainer and an instructor is that we speak com two completely different languages. Like we are very much a verbal species. Like we have a million and one ways to say exactly the same thing, right? Dogs only really have one way or maybe two ways if they are excellent, you know, or very driven to learn or pay attention. Um, but making human beings in the scenario, the very adaptable species in this pairing, like figure out how to change how they're communicating <laughs> with their dogs to, to find success in oh, training man, and like hard. obedience and stuff. That is the hardest part. People are stupid. Yes. <laughs> People are <laughs> dumb. Dogs are easy, man. Like once you figure out how to talk to a dog and communicate effectively with a dog or trick the dog into doing what you want it to do, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy, right? But like people are slow people do not communicate visually. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a room with somebody where I'm like, get away from me. Like, and I'm saying it with my body and that person doesn't pick up on the cue at all. Like they don't, we do not visually communicate. Like you can, you can be doing a facial expression at someone and they don't really understand what it is you're trying to get them 
to do, you know? Like, Which is weird because humans are so visual. <laughs> well, I mean, we are, but we're not but good at interpreting. But you talk yourself out of a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's very much two different learning, like too much or very much two different uh, communication styles, right? And like trying to teach a human being to watch for different signals from a, from a dog and like interpret the very, very quick, quickly changing visual cues, like being able to, to, uh, being able to read those things really, really fast and be able to interpret that information, like very, very important. Mikey, what were you going to say? This is such, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, Josh, or if you've heard this, but you talked about the brief, super important. Sam, you're talking about like with a dog, it's physical visual cues and it's simple. I think with a human, it's psychological feeling, emotional things that mm -hmm. motivate them. I, I have what I call the decision-making pyramid or it's like the decision-making tree. Have you heard me talk about this before? I think I've heard this before at one point. It is my ultimate tool I go to to decide whether I'm going to let a student or an instructor allow something to happen in the tunnel. I'm going to let am I going to let them lift off the net? Mm -hmm. Am I going to release to let them try a backflip to head down? Do I think it's appropriate to walk in the tunnel? Do I think it's appropriate to try to wave to their mom in their first flight or do a high flight? But I call it the decision-making pyramid. And it starts at the base and the foundation, which is the biggest and mo most important piece, which is you have to be safe. And it's a general safety of yourself and the customer, the tunnel, everyone involved. You have to accomplish being safe when you're making decisions in the tunnel or nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. You get hurt, it's all down the drain. Nothing, you can't pass go if you get hurt. So at the base of my decision-making pyramid, when I decide if I'm going to do something as a trainer, a coach, or a flyer, skydiver, canopy pilot, whatever, is it going to be safe for mm -hmm. generally for me and for everyone else involved? If I can accomplish that, sometimes that's simple to do. Sometimes it's difficult. If I can accomplish that, then I move to the middle layer. For me, the middle layer of accomplishment and making decisions is, um, is it fun for the student? Are they having an enjoyable, fun time? I think this is incredibly important, knowing about the science of flow state and how human brains work when learning something. If you're having fun, you're going to learn better. You're going to react more positively. You're going to retain information more. You're going to have better range of motion, more confidence, more strength, better reactivity. If you're having fun, you're going to assume the positive. So it's critically, critically important that the second layer of like your decision-making tree to accomplish, is are you having fun or an enjoyable time with the student and hopefully yourself too? If you're not enjoying it, something's going wrong as well. <laughs> a coach perspective, if you're the flyer and you're not enjoying it, you're really blowing it. The top of the pyramid and like the, uh, the meme of like the mind exploding with the yoga symbols or whatever is um, is learning something or what I would call progression or what I would call coaching. So when I think about making des decisions, my like decision-making pyramid, the base is safety. If I can accomplish that, then I'm trying to have fun. If I can accomplish that, then I'm trying to coach them or teach them or progress them. And it's very, very important. It goes in that order. And the most common thing I see happen with most tunnel instructors, many, is they constantly confuse or miss putting fun in 
uh, fun big and learning yeah. in the wrong order. You know why and that happens? Because, ego, money, because your students' progression, people think that it reflects on you, which it does in a way. But totally. the, I think the coach gets hung up on like, oh, if they don't learn this backflip to head down, then I'm not a good coach. And so they just do it over and over and over. I think too, like from my standpoint, my my goal for myself is always to learn more. It's always to like get the next skill. So that's where I, that more often than not, I would say that's the fun part for me is if I accomplish something new, right? Like if I can figure out the new task, like that's my ultimate goal. So that's not always your customer's ultimate goal, but right? If like, you can do that in a positive state of mind, yeah. the science supports that you will learn it better and faster with less frustration. Mm -hmm. And that responsibility of staying in that flow state zone mm -hmm. is the responsibility of the coach to have a good progression and a read of you to keep you in that space where you're aggressively learning. Um, and that is what an expert coach does. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I think about that when I'm training new instructors, training high flights, when I'm training a student to do a layout. And if I can't, make those things in that order. If I can't teach them something, then I'm just trying to have fun. Mm -hmm. And if I can't have fun, then we're just trying to stay safe. And we're just, we've totally broken down in terms of what our goals were that round. The goal is to never get there in the first place. Yeah. But if that's, you can't stay safe, then you have them get out and you fly their time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Dude, this is like- uh, Look at how fun I am. <laughs> Don't you wish you could have fun like this? <laughs> um, man, that's like such a ingenious- Thing. It's such a, a simple visual idea, but uh, this is where I'm talking about how most things in coaching are stolen because I'm stealing that, Mike. <laughs> and uh, and that's like uh, that. I feel like that's almost everything. It's in my pocket for coaching. Is somebody said this genius thing, and I'm going to take it. And I'll maybe I'll expand on it a little bit. Yeah. Something else that Mike said that uh, that he actually said this recently on our show, Collective Body Flight Academy, on YouTube. Mm. Plug, um, that I've been telling all my students this, it's the perfect way to sell people on back flying. And he said that you're never going to be better at free flying than you are at back flying. And it's yeah. so true, but just to have it put into like those, that, that real simple sentence, man, when you tell somebody that like, well, I guess I better buckle down and back fly then. Cause, uh, <laughs> that's, that does seem true. And people don't complain about back flying when you tell them that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, back flying is your go-to, you know, like it's yeah, always the go-to you're tired, go to your back. <laughs> like, um, uh, anyway, uh, the, when he was, when you were talking about the, the pyramid, right. The, uh, what do you call it? The decision-making decision-making period, safety, fun coach. Yeah. So money, convenience, you, safety, <laughs> uh, because we had just been talking <laughs> about, <laughs> because we had just been talking about dog training, uh, and you were explaining this, there were so many direct correlations between how, we are supposed to use positive reinforcement to train dogs. Like that's what I do at the phys at the place that I work at. We use positive reinforcement to train basic obedience for dogs. We do trick training, all those things. But uh, the more you were talking about it, I was trying to equate the different phases of what I would use in the ring to what it was you were describing. I think I'd have to think about what safety would equate to i think it would be the information part of it and like understanding the why behind certain things 
but like the midsection, making it fun. There are so many people that get frustrated, like frustrated all the time. And that frustration leaks over into your dog. Like if you are frustrated, your dog is going to match your intensity, right? Like it's, and it's the same thing in the, in the tunnel. They can tell when you're frustrated, like your student can tell when you are upset, when you're on edge, like they can definitely tell they're looking at you because you're not smiling, you're not moving your arms, you're not behaving in the same way. That same idea translates over to what I'm doing now, right? And then the the top part of it is, have you learned something? For a dog, I would say that's probably the reward or the incentive, like being rewarded for the behavior, you know, in whatever in whatever capacity you're using. But Give a dog a bone. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, hey, you just did that right. Fantastic. Here's your reward. Like, fantastic. Right. Um, But like, there are so many things that I imagine that pyramid, you know, that style or that that way to break things down. I, I imagine that that concept can apply to so many other types of instructions or like things that you would learn to do. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like you could probably take something like that and still be able to manipulate it and translate into something else. If that makes sense. Apply that to anything. Yeah. Like I think what I'm also gathering too, like what I'm also thinking about a lot while you guys are talking is that there is so much more that goes into teaching other than just taking what you see and trying to word vomit it out to somebody else, <laughs> you know, like the psychology there's, part. there's so much that goes into being an excellent, amazing, exceptional teacher. And I, and I don't want to say the word coach. I don't want to say the word instructor because it's teaching where you guys are talking about breaking down how to teach these things to people, not just teach the flight skills, but here's why this teaching method works. Here's why your brain works the way it does. Here's why you are visualizing things the way that you are. Like there is so much more that goes into being a, an excellent, exceptional teacher than anybody could ever, ever imagine unless you have the time and the effort and the skills and the years into it. Like I I love talking about this kind of stuff because that's my goal. I want to be an amazing, exceptional teacher. If I do nothing else than leave this earth and have someone say she was an exceptional teacher, like I I could die happy. Like yeah, I I yeah, I love I love brain. Oh man. I'm so it's overwhelmed. My, <laughs> teaching is my favorite part of skydiving. Like I never I never thought that it would be that way. Cause skydiving is like such a personal experience and it's, you know, it's so, uh, it's just so righteous, you know, yeah. just can't get enough. <laughs> but <laughs> Skydive, you got to skydive big time. But man, the thing that I look forward to the most in skydiving is teaching. Like I love doing a, like if I had the choice of like just going and doing a fun jump day or like going to coaching, I guess it would depend on who I was going to fun jump with. But most of the time I like choose to coach because it's just, man, it's like what you're talking about. It's so rewarding to, to understand how to break things down. You know, it's, it like, it really hits like the pleasure center of my brain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's so strange to, to feel that way now. Or like sometimes I'm in the tunnel, I'm like, man, like it might be like flying at the end of a session. I'm like, man, I'm so glad I got to coach today. Cause it's just one of the funnest things to do in the entire sport. Mhm. 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 Anyway, we could talk until we're blue in the face about this. Mm-hmm. We're going to move on. We're going to move on to the, to to one of the things that I am the most excited about talking about. Uh let's talk about this concept of threading. 
Oh, you uh, love threading. Uh, I don't think Mike, it's as complicated as you think. <laughs> uh, Mikey, Mikey talked to the iFly Minneapolis team about this years and years and years ago. And you explained it at one point. And I remember at the time being like very interested and intrigued by what this concept was. I vaguely recall trying it too as well with some of the other members of the team and like failing utterly <laughs> at it. Um as a visual learner, I understand what it is you're supposed to be doing based on the collective video that you guys sent me a couple of days ago. I understand what you're supposed to be doing. And I will add this video in the show notes for anybody that wants to watch it. It's on YouTube. Um, but can you describe for people who maybe have not seen it quite yet, what is threading? It was just a made-up thing by Team Collective to have cool tricks and unique-looking maneuvers in the wind tunnel. And the concept behind it was like a threading a needle through a hole where you would create formations of like building around and then one flyer flipping through the round while maintaining grip. So you're like threading the needle of your body passing through an opening of like a sit head up round to a mixed half out face round. And that general concept built to some really crazy, absurd free fly routines that you would see in the video that I still don't see created today or even attempted. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a product of doing a boatload of vertical flying in a 12 foot tunnel before dynamic. Mm -hmm. So it was like pushing the boundaries of what formation flying was. And it was kind of like a dynamic formation flying. Um, it would be off level grips. We would even do really weird things. I think the base one would be just starting with a a single hand grip and then flipping to head down into a joker maintaining the grip then recovering to sit with like the hand through your legs so it's like a split grip with the hand through the legs and then reversing that process i mean it the best thing to do is watch the video but you're like constantly threading the needle with grips to wind up and unwind a pattern in reverse mm -hmm. and it made a really cool sequence of movements in a free fly routine where there was like a forward portion and then a reverse portion to back out of it mm -hmm. that just took absurd high level vertical free fly burble skills to not not get hurt very very badly it was mm -hmm. absurd yes. that's why we describe threading yeah you can use that concept a lot when you're like teaching somebody like doing like um doing like difficult dock drills with like a, a high level flyer like having them dock under their leg or like take a, a right hand dock and then reach underneath it and dock with their left hand. It's just a, you can really use that as a, a technique for teaching people to fly in really weird positions. I know that, I mean, I've seen you do that, Mike. I, I do that a lot with people that are, you know, really high level. I think the, the easiest one is sit flying, putting your hand underneath your knee and sticking out in front and docking out in front. Like that's kind of like the, the baseline threading maneuver that I always think about whenever I'm teaching somebody something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so we tried that way back in the day. And <laughs> I mean, at the time we were just, just getting good at like vertigo flying. So it's probably like get hiding off a little bit more than we could chew probably at the time. Um, but it's always been something I've been fascinated by. And especially watching the video again, I was like, damn, <laughs> like, oh my God, this is amazing. This stuff is amazing. I want to know why isn't this like more, why is it this has, why hasn't this been adopted into more of the routines that we see? Like this is, I mean, you guys talk about it like where where it's not terribly complicated or it's not like overly, you know, like a mental load. But I 
I am curious why we don't see more things like this because it's fucking impressive. <laughs> like it is, it is very cool to watch seven different combinations of these moves one right after another. Like I don't, I don't understand why it hasn't been adopted on a on a larger scale. I think you do see it in skydiving, <clears throat> like with exits, like with a skin the cat exit. Yeah. You see a lot where people like do layouts and then they'll flip through the hole of the the grips. But in the tunnel, I definitely like we never really scored very well in competition doing those maneuvers because mm-hmm. by the time we started competing doing um artistic events, the 14 foot tunnels had become more widely adopted and all anyone wanted to see was like movement. But you do see occasionally like with four-way uh routines where they'll grip and like flip people through holes and stuff mm-hmm. but i think it's like it's just the 14 foot tunnels are amazing but i think the biggest problem with them is that they just encourage so much movement mm. and it's just uh you know you can sometimes you could you see people that just don't know how to stop and i think that is one of the the strengths of a 12 foot tunnel. I mean, it probably sounds like I'm just rationalizing a 12 foot tunnel being good. Cause it's what I fly in mostly, but it really does teach you like the vertical skills, static skills, teach you how to stop. And that's just as important as being awesome at moving. Cause you really need both sides of that coin. I mean, if you think about that in skydiving terms, like look at angle flying versus, you know, static flying, like there's lots of people who skip over the static flying and just go straight mm-hmm. in the angle because it's so much fun and it's amazing. And it's easy to be in those, skydives you know relative to being really really good at dyn- at dynamic um or not dynamic uh static flying so i wonder if there's any i can't imagine that the it translate as as well like that into a glass tube but there's a direct correlation between carving and dynamic flying and angle flying and okay. static flying formation flying like yeah but i think it's really important to you know you want to be good at both because you i always think of formation flying is the heart of skydiving because mm-hmm. that's pretty much where it all started. And with 14 foot tunnels and dynamic, it is easy for those static skills to just go by the wayside or just, I mean, flying's expensive and not everyone can focus on every single discipline mm-hmm. and you don't have to be an expert in both, but it is good to have a good static foundational base because you can always tell a flyer that doesn't, static fly because when they go to stop they're just shuffling back and forth in mm-hmm. a shelf and they can't fly a slot mm-hmm. and you know you want to be able to stop and go into a daffy or a shelf and just stop static and pick up a grip if you need to because mm-hmm. you see like really awesome uh angle fly videos a lot of times they'll stop and like build something or they'll build something first and then they'll take off and it's like oh those are people that you know have the whole gamut of flying mastered mm-hmm. interesting yeah. I'd love to encourage anybody listening, trying to get into VFS or um, doing more coaching to talk to your local tunnels, especially the GMs and the experienced instructors and request and say that you'd like the ability to do that. Like push on the business to say that this was an awesome thing to do. It would be really, really great to learn more and put them in a position of requesting that as a service. Mm -hmm. Um, It, Every community I've been at and Josh has been at has had the access to VFS league and training. And what it did for the tunnel is build a community of flyers, reduce the cost of entry, double the amount of flight time people were getting, increased group flying. So all these positive benefits to make it more affordable and approachable and fun. 
um, was really helpful. So if you want to get into VFS, talk to your local tunnel, especially the GM and the uh, uh, in experienced instructors, and say, like, listen, this is something I'd love to do. And it's accessible as soon as you can belly and backfly. This is very accessible early on, mm-hmm. and it makes it easy to coordinate and mix with people from a, a very early stage. Unlike dynamic flying, which will be 10, 20, 30 hours before you're doing any kind of carving with anyone else other than a coach. So I think there are some huge benefits to that, to becoming a tunnel rat faster. And yeah, I'd love for more people to get in, into it. It builds a community and makes it easier to fly better more often. Okay. Um, I think, like, I mean, at least at I Fly Minneapolis, I've heard some rumblings of things finally picking up and going back to some of the things that we were doing before COVID hit, you know, um, in terms of VFS. And now uh, Heather and Dan, shout out to them. They're kind of forming their own little belly league um, and trying to build up That's awesome. more group belly skills in the in the tunnel. They've worked it out with the GM and they figured out a system that works for them. And they're finally getting people in, getting signed off on like group skydiving, group or group flying in the tunnel. So things are looking up, but he's right. Like you should absolutely be vocalizing those things to whoever's running your local tunnel um, and be persistent with it no matter how many times you're told. <laughs> that it's not working or it's not going to be something that they can work out. I think something else um, my teammate, Jeremy, actually talked about is go to them with a solution. You know, go to them with a plan and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, how could we implement something like this versus, hey, this is a problem. I think we should need more of it, you know, so. And creative. I know Josh and I would be more than open to doing video review or consulting on VFS draws or building a team. Uh Love to give a, a shout out for our, our show to support in this and play with you and yeah. work back and forth. Um, we're doing a video review reaction on tunnel flying and skydiving called Collective Body Flight Academy. It's a YouTube channel for Team Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, free coaching. We want people to submit video. We have a, a Gmail account, uh, Collective Body Flight Academy at gmail.com. People can submit videos, questions, and if you want to, We'd love to have you on our show to just walk through a flight video and dissect and debrief it. And I think that could go a long way towards helping people grow um, and learn from experts, even if we're, you know, states away, many tunnels away, and or you don't have a VFS league Mm -hmm. at your tunnel, MFS ability at your drop zone. Josh and I would love to coach you through and watch those videos on our channel. So please reach out, shoot us a message. Let's get connected. And keep the sport of flying growing and progressing yeah. safety fun coach you know <laughs> pyramid uh Indeed. We, we need to come up with a hand signal for that like zoltan from uh, <laughs> uh from dude where's my car um i'm glad you brought that up because that was gonna be my last my last thing that i wanted to ask you guys about is what you guys are doing moving forward like i i kind of think that i was getting some rumblings of the team getting back together in some capacity so it was kind of i was going to ask you like What's happening moving forward for you guys? Like, what are your goals? Um, really quick, can you just explain a little bit more in depth about what the um, what co- collective body flight? Jesus, it is so late at night, and I am slurring so bad. I'm so sorry. Uh, Let collective Mike do body the talking flying. for yes. you. Yes, <laughs> um, I would love to hear a little bit, just a little bit more in depth about what the intention was behind it when you formed it, and like what it is you want to get out of it. You know, you already kind of touched on it a little bit, but just maybe a little bit more, a little bit more. I love flying. I'm better at it exponentially when I have 
Josh's input, especially on the coaching side, to help me develop an engineer and think through things and bring the humor to it. Um, and the purpose of Collective Body Flight Academy is to talk about and spread the joy of flying with people where you can have access to us in an easy, approachable way. And, you know, at the end of the day, we want to, I want to provide value to people. I see an incredible need for this. And all of the people that are watching it, tunnel rats, new students, new coaches, new trainers, tunnel GMs could support could benefit from having this info drop zones organizers to just think through and see what what people are asking and there's a neat element of it being anonymous to watch where you kind of remove the ego or the uh the the barrier of entry for like feeling silly because mm -hmm. i know the tunnels like you're this insect in a glass tube and everyone's staring at you like going to nationals and by tube. watching the video yeah by watching the videos you can eliminate that stress or fear and get to learn from others flying is so expensive in this day and age it's so difficult to book time for mm -hmm. reasons a b c d through z that we need to take any advantage we can as a flight community to get better to maximize our time and learning curve and fun and safety and minimize the cost and frustration and i just think there's a severe um my observation personally and anecdotally is that there's a severe lack of coaching that is out there when it when it comes to instructing and body flight and you know economy and other issues have led to that and it doesn't need to be that way so the purpose of this for me is to share value with and make the community better and i'd love to get modern questions or up-to-date questions from beginners through experts that we could talk through about like how do you make this flying thing awesome in the way it should be and apply, you know, collect team collectives lens to it and make it fun. That's, that's what I want. Flying's awesome. And I would love for it to get back to that and safety fun coach. You have to do those things. How can we apply these skills and lessons to share with others so that it's reaching a broader audience, not just a le one league at a time or one 15 minute block at a time, but maybe hundreds of people at a time. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to see it. We're casually investing in it. And I think we're putting out a new video a week is what makes sense. Mm -hmm. But uh, we'd love for it to grow and become something bigger and better. Yeah, I like how um, unfortunate, like it's it's an unfortunate side effect of like the, the state, the state right now, you know, like the situation or the the community right now unfortunately but i like how adaptable you guys have become you know like you uh are changing what your normal methodology was to get that information out or to somehow continue on with what you were doing you know i like how it how how much you guys i unfortunately have had to adapt to get to get it to this point but um i think that's a hallmark that's just it's another good thing to point out like adaptability and figuring out how to continue on doing what you're doing in a way that's conducive to the community at large. Like adaptability is a huge hallmark trait of an amazing, excellent, extraordinary instructor or teacher. Like being able to adapt with all totally. of the new things. Like I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned as a tunnel instructor is you need to be adaptable. You need we to just both love flying. And yeah. yeah. We both love coaching. And even if we can't fly, we still want to be able to break things down and pass on the knowledge. Like mm -hmm. I said earlier, like at that 
tickles a part of my brain that I don't get anywhere else. And I'm sure it does for both of you. Uh, and so, yeah, Collective Body Flight Academy gives us a way to do that even on days when we're not in the wind or when the wind is not accessible. Mm-hmm. It's very impressive. It's very, it's very much uh, deserving of respect too as well. Like I respect mad, mad props, mad respect to both of you um, for everything and all that you do <laughs> like, and well, for how much bullshit you tolerate from me on a regular basis with the questions and the uh, uh, midnight uh, <laughs> messages that I'm sure are popping up on your phones. Like appreciate you both. You're amazing. Thank you. We love Thank it. You. Keep it coming. <laughs> I've got another plug. Sure. If you guys like podcasts, it. which I'm assuming you do because you're listening Content to one right now. Content Clearing House. Exactly. I also host a <laughs> podcast called The Content Clearing House where we profile movies, shows, video games, podcasts, and books. You know, stuff that's not flying if you like yeah. that kind of thing. And uh, the express intent of the show is to sell the listener on consuming mm-hmm. the things that me and my co-host Brett love. So check out The Content Clearing House wherever, you, wherever pods are casted. Uh, I still, I still have the thing we talked about this forever ago, uh, but I still have the thing I would love to come on and plug. I, I finally settled on the thing that I would want to do like on your podcast. If I ever (laughs) got the chance to do it, um, I'm still sitting on it. It's in a notebook someplace. I took a bunch of notes on it. So it's, if you have an outline created, you come on and, uh, try to earn your contentology degree. There's only one way to get it now that Harvard shut down their contentology program. That's a thing. Thing we made up. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, um, make sure you send me those links so that I can uh add them into the show notes so that anyone can access them if they want. I would love the link. Um, I will find the link to the content clearing house. Um, uh, the link to your guys' YouTube channel. I don't have that. So if one of you guys could send it to me, that would be fantastic. And then um there was one other thing that I was going to throw on there, and now I can't remember what it was. But now when I listen and I go back on it, I will. Collective I will video. We sent you the link to that what, one. That's what it is, the collective video. So um, I'm going to link those three sh- things in the show notes. Guys, if you're listening, go and check those things out. Take some time to review those. Definitely watch the video at the very least because, holy crap, is it amazing. Those The things that are doing in these videos, we're not allowed to do in tunnels anymore. <laughs> like the, They are they are wild, amazing, crazy tricks that you should definitely check out. I think there was even like a little bit of trivia in there about how you guys lost a bunch of shoes uh, doing this, right? <laughs> like we through the turn veins. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was going to be our showstopper at the end. And uh, we got it, quote unquote, approved. And uh, we sent all six of our shoes through the fan at once. And that should not have been approved. We <laughs> thought we set the building on fire. Good Lord. Instant Good black smoke. Lord. Good Lord. <laughs> um, okay. Well, guys, I appreciate you. It's midnight here though. <laughs> so uh we're gonna wrap it up here. I appreciate you both being on this show. I appreciate you guys taking a couple of hours to sit and chat and shoot the shit and relive some of your glory days with me. Um, I'm really happy we did this. I'm really happy we finally got around to doing this. Like, thank you very much. Appreciate you both. Thank Pleasure. you. <laughs> now that means oh go ahead what were you gonna say salmon bread salmon bread salmon bread salmon bread salmon bread salmon bread (laughs) our our jumpsuits are all like that faded elite um vertical pink it's the salmon you know what i'm talking about delicious (laughs) the yeah whatever that fabric was that's that's gonna be pink yeah it's gonna be great anyway for everyone listening thank you for joining me i really appreciate you i appreciate your time your effort and your love listening to this uh blue skies be safe have fun skydives 
Tear the tunnel into your holes. <laughs>